HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Hello. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today I'm here with Josh Rogers, founder of Heritage Seaweed, Cup of Sea, and Portland, Maine's first annual Seaweed Week. I'm really excited to talk about farming and eating kelp. Josh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, I mean, first of all, I think we kind of need to acknowledge the fact that you're on Heritage Radio and the name of your company is Heritage Seaweed. It was all <laughs> part of the plan from the beginning. Right. You were like, I really want to get on Heritage Radio, That's so right. this is going to be my angle. <laughs> um, well, how did you come up with the name? Um, it was partly due to, I think people have this, a lot of people have this natural affinity with seaweed. Mm. They are curious about it. They... They um, feel like they know it's good for them, and yet they they don't really like, have it Ugh. as part of their life. Yeah, they don't <laughs> know what to do with it. They don't know much about it. And so I wanted to kind of connect it to the foodie world. Mm. So the idea of, like, you know, heritage pork mm-hmm. or heirloom tomatoes or something like that. Um, so it kind of connotes, oh, this is maybe a foodie thing. It also... Um, 
is more meaningful in terms of heritage. Like this is, um, especially on the coast of Maine, seaweed is our heritage. Like mm. it's been gathered for thousands of years um, and it's been used for thousands of years. So it's something like any sort of heritage. It's something to protect, but it's also something to use and celebrate. Right. So. Um, and so how did you get into seaweed? So I, I always... You know, from my earliest memory, I grew up eating a seaweed called dulse. Mm. It's a red seaweed. It grows in the Gulf of Maine and um, the North Atlantic in Ireland. And so my grandparents were from Canada, okay. like just over the border in St. Stephen, New Brunswick. And they moved down to um, where I was born. It was like a mill town in the 30s for jobs. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of brought that tradition with them of like eating dulse. It was a little more popular up in Canada. Okay. And so we would go back every summer and get big bags of dulse and like hoard it and, <laughs> uh, you know, have to last the whole year. Um, and so I grew up having just that love and connection to this really distinctive food that right. we would just eat by the How handful. How did you eat it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you just eat it by the huh. handful. And I see it now in stores and it has all the cooking directions. Yeah. And to me, it's just like, no, just, just, just eat a hunk of it. Like a snack. Yep. <laughs> um, and so then I moved down to New York City um, in about 2005. I was really missing um, Maine, missing that smell of the coast. Because mm. um, that's where so many, you know, of my memories were. And so I started ordering seaweed from, from Maine and seaweeds that I had never experimented with before, like right. kelp, and cooking with it. And then it was years later, I was, um, I was working at Google and I was on break. I was drinking green tea mm -hmm. and I just was struck by the fact that it tasted exactly like kelp. Huh. And I had studied Japanese in college and I had been to Japan and I kind of remembered, oh, there's this style of Japanese green tea called gyokuro which is prized for like seaweed tasting notes. Huh. It's really expensive. doesn't have any seaweed in it, but, um, and I was like, oh, I wonder if there is such a thing as seaweed tea because I'm a big tea drinker. So mm -hmm. I Googled it and there wasn't. And so I, I started joking around about it at work, but I, it was like a stand-up routine. It just kind of <laughs> kept building like week after week. Right. And I started really thinking about it. And then there was an event in, in Maine in about 2014 called the Maine Seaweed Festival. Okay. And so I went up and on the drive up, I rem I remember I had gotten pretty serious about it this, at this point. And I remember thinking, Oh, I'm going to learn something about seaweed that is going to make me, you know, not want to do this idea. And it's probably going to be about farm seaweed. Mm. Cause I was thinking about farm salmon and some of the th things in the past that have, um, gone wrong with farmed seafood. Right, of course. Um, and so that's that was my only reference point. And what I learned, everything that I learned up there was how amazing seaweed farming is. Mm. And I, 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 it just clicked, and I was like, I've got to do this. And so I think the next year, my family, my family and I moved back to Maine and um, started really slowly with with you know just working on the teas like in my house, and then kind of growing it. Right. Well, and okay, so that was 2014, you said that you went to, and so there was a Maine Seaweed Festival in 2014. Yeah. So um, I feel like, you know, this 
world of seaweed has been growing so much in Maine, but I I mean, like how much has it grown since then? Um, Well, well, it's interesting. Like you actually have to go back before you can go forward. So the cool thing about Maine is it always had a seaweed industry. Mm. Um, And so I think part of that is due to the fact that like on the West coast, it's like, they're so kind of um, focused on Asia that Mm. it, that it was just, oh, why would we do our own seaweed? Got like, it. you know, we can get all the good stuff from Japan. And so Maine has this seaweed industry that goes back, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. And so, you know, even, yeah, when the seaweed fair happened already, we had had really mature companies that were doing hmm. wild harvested seaweed. Um, we had some processing facilities that were doing things uh, like, processing seaweed for fertilizer and other things. Um, and then there had started to be some newer companies that were doing farming mm-hmm. um, and value-added products. So so there, so we just had a really great sort of um, industry in place already that was diverse. And so since that, since that festival, that was kind of a, an acknowledgement of like, oh, we have all this stuff. Right. Um, and let's put it all together. We also have a lot of colleges that have um, marine aquaculture mm. programs. We have a, we have a few major scientific laboratories that are focused on it too. Um, so it's a good ecosystem. And um, since then, it's I'd say it's grown a lot. Like yeah. um, so, this year there's actually going to be three different um, seaweed events. There's going to be my event, which is the uh, S- Seaweed Week. Mm-hmm. There's going to be another seaweed kind of um, symposium, I guess, um, in June. And then there's the main seaweed fair, um, which is more like a, with vendors and things like that Okay. Um, in July. So it's like, you know, we can support three different major events. Right. And um, there are all these different companies doing skincare and food items. So it's, it's really exciting. Yeah. One cool thing that I remember learning, so I did this story on um, seaweed farming in Maine earlier, I guess it was last year that I did it, um, or the year before, man, time, <laughs> time kind of flies by, you know, um, but I went to Portland and I got to go out on a, a boat with Tala Folson, who's a seaweed farmer and uh, one of the owners of Ocean's Balance, and um, one of the things that I learned about Maine, when you think about like why Maine, other than I guess the water temperature is great for kelp, right, is the coastline. Um, I had never like looked at a, at the Maine coastline closely. And, you know, they were telling me that it's so sort of like windy, like there's so much coastline and it's all kind of like winding and winding. And there's all these little protected areas where you can put these kelp farms that they're protected from the open ocean, and that's kind of unique, right? That's right. Yeah. So I think Maine, I think they usually say it has something like 5,000 miles of coastline. That's and insane. it's definitely not 5,000 miles right. when you look at it. But if you unwind that ribbon of the coast, it, it, it yeah, there are just so many little protected coves and bays. Mm-hmm. And then there's all the islands. And mm. sure, there's some big islands, but there's also a ton of little rocks, you know, and those also offer protection. So... Um, and then it, it is the Gulf of Maine, so there is some protection from, you know, just the shape of the whole Gulf, which, ha- you know, which does go down to Cape Cod and, and also has, um, you know, Canada and 
in Newfoundland up there. Right. So, so yeah, it's a protected, cold, very clean body of water. Um, and we have a, a long tradition of oyster and mussel um, farms. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is that system is already in place to have um, mariculture. So it's it hasn't been much of a, a lift to create a lot of seaweed farms along with that. Whereas on the West Coast, um, I, I think they just haven't been set up that way historically. And right. so I think it's a little bit slower to get going. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so you mentioned, you know, when you started thinking about seaweed and farming seaweed, you sort of were thinking like, oh, aquaculture, like what, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of problems yeah. with it and you kind of, it has this connotation. Um, and when you started learning about seaweed farming, you were surprised that, um, by what you found. So tell me a little bit about that. Like what, what did, um, what about the process intrigued you? Yeah. So it is, it's constantly amazing to me, <laughs> um, in terms of sustainability. So, um, it is a truly zero input crop. So it requires no fresh water, no land, which is going to become a big thing too. Um, no pesticides, no fertilizers. So what happens is um, in a lab, you, right now, this is the technology. It, it, it sounds re- really low, low tech, but mm-hmm. you take these um, tubes, like PVC tubes, right. and you wrap them in this, these little threads and the algae spores begin to grow. So you just have this kind of brown tube and you go out in November on the water and you stick ropes inside of the PVC pipe and then your boat just trundles along and, and it spins onto the little threads spin onto the rope and then your kelp starts growing. And while it's growing, so it grows from about November to April or May. Okay. While it's growing, it's doing all sorts of great things for the water quality. Mm-hmm. So it's reducing ocean acidification, at least kind of in its immediate area. It's creating a ton of oxygen. About, I think it's 80% of the world's oxygen comes from algae, mm-hmm. not plants. And so, you know, a lot of that is marine algae, seaweed. Um, it's, uh, it's creating habitat for all sorts of like baby uh, lobsters and different things, which is a huge, you know, of huge importance to right. Maine's economy. Um, and what... A lot of uh, mussel and oyster farmers are finding as well is that it has beneficial effects for their their shellfish. So there's a a farm out in Casco Bay, which is Portland's uh, harbor, and called Bangs Island Mussels, and they have a mussel farm and right next to it a kelp farm. Mm. And so Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences um, did a test last year. So some of their mussels get the current from the kelp farm and some okay. don't. So they, they did like a crush test oh, against cool. those shells. And they found very overwhelming evidence that showed that the um, the shells were much stronger for the mussels that were getting the sort of wash from the kelp farm. Hmm. And so that was, you know, th- there's just sort of endless benefits. And then, of course, it is... Um, not a plant, but essentially we could, we can call it a vegetable, I guess. Right. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's not requiring any of the other things that would say something like meat, would mm-hmm. re- you know, all the fossil fuels to get it around in the methane. Um, so it's, 
it's just one of those things where if if we could have you know ten thousand kelp farms, it would be just an amazing thing. Yeah. So the more, just the more, the better. It this this conversation is reminding me so much of um, I had this. We had an episode recently with um, Peter Sign from Pico Oysters, and I think like there's a lot of similarities, right, in building these ocean ecosystems um, in terms of farming oysters, farming seaweed. Um, yeah, if you're listening and you want to listen to that episode, I feel like it would be a really good kind of <laughs> double header. <laughs> I just listened to it and it was great. Oh, thank you. Um, so I actually learned a lot about oyster farming. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned um, the lobster industry too. And um, one thing too that I thought was interesting um, is the the harvest is kind of um, uh, opposite of right. lobster, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. So actually, a lot of lobstermen are getting in, are starting kelp farms right. because it's off season for them. It's November to April, May, and they already have the boat. They already have most of the gear, so it's a fairly low investment for them mm-hmm. to get something like that going. It's a crop, not something that you catch. So you know, from that perspective too, it's it's kind of a hedge against fluctuating. Um, you know, lobster catches and things. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really interesting to see um, lobstermen getting into kelp farming, but it's happening a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So do you go out and and visit the farms a lot? I haven't been out too much. I've been, I've been, I've, I've um, seeded ropes, which you've Mm. done, which uh, I thought I was going to really enjoy. It was really hard. It's cold (laughs) and there's not much to look at. You know, you're just putting a, brown thread on a rope and right. kind of going along and um, yeah, super cold. Harvesting is really fun. Yeah. Um, you go out in April, May and so the lines so a kelp farm is a really simple kind of setup for the most part. Yeah. So it's a rope um, attached to two buoys and then it go, going down to anchors on the bottom. And so and then, you know, for each row I guess that you hoe like mm. is, is one of those. Um, but you, you went out and you said you didn't really see anything. Well, right. You just yeah. basically, it just looks like the beautiful bay. And then there's like a little buoy that says right. sea farm. Right. <laughs> You're like, Oh, we're, we're on top of it. And exactly. you don't even know. Yeah. So how would you even harvest that? So the boat goes out and it usually has like a, a little winch on it with a little, almost like crane crane arm. And so you kind of lift up part of the rope, a section of the rope and, you just trim off the uh, the kelp. It come it comes off really easily, and um, and it's fun. Yeah. yeah. And then the 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 difficult the difficulty comes in if you want to dry it. Mm. Um, obviously, you have, you have to hang it all up. Um, it has to be proper drying conditions. You have to have a facility to do that. And so, the the last time I went out harvesting, I think we it was, there was just a couple of us and. We went to Maine Sea Farms, and we harvested about 400 pounds of kelp. Wow. And they told me that it would make about 40 pounds of dried kelp. Wow. So, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's a little dispiriting, yeah. but, um, but it's a lot of fun, and it's, it's just cool to yeah. see it coming out of the water. Is it, um, is it all kelp? That, I mean, I, that's what I always hear about, but you mentioned, like, you know, dulse in yeah. Canada. I- so in Maine, so worldwide, there's probably about 10,000 species of marine algae. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not all edible in Maine. There's about 10 edible species. 
and we've gotten pretty good at cultivating a couple of them. Okay. So sugar kelp, it's kind of a misnomer, it's not sugary. Sugar kelp and um, alaria, we're pretty good at, at cultivating hmm. winged kelp, you'd call it. Um, or it's it's sort of akin to wakame. Okay. Um, I th- we're working on cultivating dulse um, and some of the some of the other ones, but mm. um, yeah, they're they're more finicky. Uh, Got it. I guess, but you know, work's definitely being done. Yeah. Um, we also have a species in the North Atlantic that is similar to nori, so I think there's work being done on that as well. Mm, that's a so, little bit more yeah. like people eat more of it right now. Right, exactly. Right? So, yeah. Something like 95% of the seaweed that's consumed in the United States is from Asia hmm. right now. So even if we can, even if that's our only market, that's a huge market to, you know, um, you, you don't even necessarily have to grow the market. Right. You just have to take a little bit back. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, so we have to take a break, and that's a perfect um, spot, I think, because um, we've been talking so much about farming, and when we come back, we can talk about eating kelp. (laughs) All right. We'll be right back. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. I'm here with Josh Rogers from Heritage Seaweed and Cup of Sea, and we've been talking a lot about farming seaweed in Maine. Um, and I think, you know, we can talk all day about growing it, but if people aren't going to eat it, that's a problem. What are we doing right? <laughs> so, I mean, on a basic level, I think my first question is just like, are people going to eat it? You know, it's it's been sort of this building thing for, I think, in the past few years, you see, like, seaweed is the next right. health food. And, and you know, but I don't, hold, like, you do Has see some... New, right, yeah. exactly. Or, will it arrive? Yeah. Yeah, so kind of, you said the next big thing or whatever. So I'm going to just start with a phrase that I, I really hate, mm-hmm. um, which is, um, kelp is the new kale. Oh, I've seen that a so, lot, yeah. I've seen <laughs> a lot. And the reason I don't like it, nothing against kale. Um... <laughs> But it's um, seaweed encompasses like a whole, 
huge um, uh, variety of different tastes and um, culinary properties and uses. Um, and it tastes good. Right. Um, so we discovered... I think kale tastes good for the yeah, I do, too. I do, too. <laughs> I like kale. Um, but it's... I mean, seaweed is all over the map of, of taste. And um, so to say... you know, if, if someone says, you know, I don't like seaweed, it's it's like saying I don't like vegetables right. in, in a way. I see what you're saying. Um, so I think the first thing that, you know, people should realize is that there's this broad range of tastes. Mm-hmm. They, they might not realize that. And there there's a really wide array of culinary uses. It's not just something that, you know, you can throw in soup, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can do so many things with it, uh, especially... Um, a little bit goes a long way. So you, if you toast it into flakes and crumble it on things, that really changes the flavor. Mm. Um, you can um, saute it, um, all sorts of different things. And then each, yeah, each individual species has its own flavor profile. Right. Um, so it's, it's really diverse. Um, it is where we got umami. You know, it's mm-hmm. where we discovered umami, which everyone loves. Um and so especially for vegetarians, too, you know, that's something that can be lacking. A lot of people eat mushrooms mm-hmm. if they're vegetarian because it's it's a little bit like meat. You know, mm-hmm. It has that savory kind of thing. So seaweed has that. Right. Um, and so um, during Seaweed Week in Portland, um, part of that, I think, is is related to chefs highlighting, right, what they're doing with it. Right. So when I lived in New York City, I, I also worked at Zagat restaurant guide. I was mm-hmm. an editor. So I was surrounded by professional foodies, basically. Mm-hmm. And they knew I was from Portland and every summer, you know, some somebody would be going on vacation up to Portland and they'd ask me, where's the best lobster roll? You know, where who, who's doing the best oysters? And, mm-hmm. uh, which was great, but seaweed was never part of that conversation. And I, it really deserves to be. So that's really what Seaweed Week is all about. And of course, to elevate, not not to elevate seaweed, but really to put it in its proper place, you have to connect with chefs. And so what I found out in putting the week together was that actually there are a fair amount of chefs in Maine and Portland um, already working with seaweed. Mm. Um, Some of them are doing it in in sort of just, you know, really basic ways, like with stock. Okay. Um, An example of that is uh, Eventide Oyster Company. Oh, yeah. I went there. Yeah. Wonderful. So good. Yeah. And I just was on a panel talk with um, Mike Wiley, who's one of the owners, and he was saying, it's more behind the scenes for them. Okay. Um, You wouldn't know it, but he says he literally, every time he walks through the kitchen, um, if there's something that's boiling, um, he's like, is there seaweed in that? Put some seaweed in that. So it's it's basically their bay leaf. Right. Or, you know, it's just like something that they put in everything for that umami hit. Um, so any sort of sauce, any sort of broth, any, you know, uh, mini net that you put on your oyster probably has seaweed in it from, from them. And then there are people like four street, uh, which mm-hmm. is, you know, like this James Beard restaurant that's been around for, you know, one of the first farm to table restaurants that sometimes will, you know, wrap a whole fish in like a kelp mm-hmm. leaf or, um, like kind of deep fry a bit of a kelp leaf and present <laughs> it very artfully on the plate. Um, so there is a spectrum of of, of people um, using using it. Yeah. But we've also turned on some other restaurants to it as well. 
Um, so it's it's going to be really exciting. We have about um, 55 restaurants participating all over Maine. About half of them, more than half are in Portland. Oh, it's all over Maine. It's all over oh, Maine, okay. yeah. Um, even a couple in New Hampshire. Mm. And um, But, you know, most of them are in Portland. And then we've also got seaweed on the menu all that week at uh, 14 college campuses all over Maine. Oh, too. wow. Yeah, every day of the week, um, which is huge because you get the you youngins their, in you, there. And you got the food service companies? That yeah. That's so pretty there's impressive. This, there's this massive global food service company called Sodexo. Right, of course. And, and in Maine, they have this um, thing called Maine Course, which is like they're, um, you know, they're trying to uh, do a certain percent of their food uh, volume locally. of local, locally. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the pieces of that is um, sustainable and underutilized, you know, seafood. Hmm. Which, you know, seaweed goes right into that. Yeah. It hits all their, you know, all their little bucket list asks. So mm-hmm. so they are all excited about it. And, um, yeah, it's it's going to be really exciting. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got all these chefs using it. And then, you know, you're also selling a lot of packaged foods with seaweed at Heritage, right? Yeah. And and you make tea with it. Right. It's like this, it's it's one of those that we're trying to show people that, um, like I was saying before, there's this range of f- flavors, but there's just this range of things that can be done with seaweed. It, it um, you know, unlike, unlike kale, not, not to pick on it, but, you know, <laughs> it really is this multifaceted thing that we're really only kind of beginning to understand. Um, and of course, like for me, um, you know, growing up or, you know, sort of having a background in food writing and everything and like, you know, I enjoy eating. Um, <laughs> I care most about food um, and the sustainability aspect of that. But, um, you know, all the things that make seaweed so healthy for you to eat also make it pretty good for skincare items. So mm-hmm. at the shop, um, we have a bunch of skincare items. A lot of them are from Maine. Uh, we have all sorts of different food items. So there's a new, there's something new that's coming out um, that's going to be kelp jerky. I just was talking to the company yeah, that's making Akua. that. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they kind of split their time, I think, between um, New York and Machias, Maine, huh. where they have a kelp farm. I actually think there might be some samples of it at my house oh, waiting nice. for me. Yeah. I still I haven't home. tried it, but we're going <laughs> to we're gonna sell it when, when they finally get it out there. Mm. Um, there's the kelp puree that Ocean's Balance mm-hmm. made that you were talking about before going out to their farm. There's Atlantic Sea Farms, which um, is just about to launch their line. Um, which is going to be kelp smoothie cubes, oh. which are like a no-brainer. Like mm. that just sounds so good. And so they um, come um, frozen. They're like frozen. They would, okay. Yep. It's basically just yeah, um, kelp blended, uh, you know, smushed up and frozen, and mm. just add it to your smoothie. Um, they're they're going to have some other things too, like a, a kimchi and something, things like that. Um, there's all oh, sorts of. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. A kimchi with seaweed. Oh yeah, that would be really so good. good. Yeah. Um, and there's a tr- there is a tradition of like fermented. Um, sea vegetables going back um, as well. So it's it's a really exciting time, and it's just at the beginning. Um, but Seaweed Week is really, um, ho- you know, we're just hoping to kind of take it to the next level mm-hmm. and um, kind of everyone is a foodie these days. My mother, you know, is. <laughs> um, which, you know, and I love my mother, but, you know, sh- she's not necessarily an adventurous eater, but she... Um, 
is now very much cares about organic mm-hmm. and um, things like that. And so, you know, the country is just moving that direction. And so um, if your favorite chef is doing something and tells you it's sustainable and it tastes pretty good, um, then you might start cooking with it at home. Right. And so this is really meant to just kind of begin that um, for for a lot of people who maybe aren't so sure about seaweed. Yeah. Um, and, and tell us, you sort of skimmed over your teas. I want to yeah. know a little bit more about um, what's in them. And like, can you give me an example? Yeah. Of- so, um, so again, they're, they're very different from each other. So right now I have four blends. Okay. And um, one of them is a ginger turmeric bladderack blend. So bladderack is a seaweed probably a lot of people on the East Coast are familiar with. It grows right along the shore. It has these air bladders. And almost like goosebumps <laughs> on the air bladder. I never knew what that was called. Yeah. I mean, I've like been swimming in it my whole right, life. Exactly. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> really good. Um, it's all three of those ingredients are digestive aids, and um, they're all all three anti-inflammatories. Is that um, farmed, or do you get it harvested that wildly? That is wild. So all the teas are wild harvested okay. right now, partly because the um, the species that I'm using aren't really cultivated yet. Mm. Um, and then we use, uh, we have a tea. So that's an herbal tea. Okay. But we also have one that's, uh, do you know Lapsang Sushong? Mm-hmm. So it's like a black tea, okay. caffeinated, that's been smoked. And so with that, we put dulse, mm. which is a, a reddish um, seaweed that a lot of times, that's the one I grew up eating. And right. a lot of times it is smoked, like as a snack. And so those kind of meld mm. together. Um, and then we have a new one that's just, uh, it is a black tea with uh, a little bit of kelp, which has no seaweed taste to it whatsoever, hmm. um, or at least I can't taste it. And that's really for the people that, you know, really probably don't want to be drinking seaweed tea. But if they but could, they want they like want the, the, the minerals and yeah, okay. the things like that. Um, and so, so I finally kind of broke down and created that fl- flavor. But the other ones for me, um, that almost like see it's not even a taste so much for me as a smell Mm -hmm. um that was part of the whole selling point for doing it it was i wanted to have you know if i was living in new york city i wanted to like have something that could take me you know to the ocean yeah um and it's great like every time i drink it i do feel transported and so um, and, and other, you know, I think we eventually will catch up. Um, I was talking to a food scientist who was from Johns Hopkins, who was working on a seaweed project and mm. um, trying to get it into the American marketplace. And he said, you know, I was really lucky to have my research assistant was Korean. And so when I was developing these recipes, I was really nervous about the low tide. I, I called it the low tide test. And so it couldn't smell like low tide. And my research <laughs> assistant was like, what are you talking about? That's great. Like, we love it. I love like, that smell. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, yeah, so the teas, they range. You know, they're, they're for people who really aren't into seaweed mm. um, and, and those that are and kind of everyone in between. But um, the other reason I created them was, you know, just to solve this problem of the people who want to have it in their diet but don't know how. Right. And you know, there's a lot of tea drinkers out there already. So this is just another flavor that you can add into your rotation. Right. Yeah. Um, what I really want to know is how much seaweed do you eat? 
yeah. <laughs> you know, are you drinking these teas and putting it in all your food? It, like it's always it's always varied throughout mm-hmm. the year. So like growing up, you know, we would get the dulse mm-hmm. and around harvest time, around the time we were going to Canada, August, September, you know, we'd be eating a lot of it. And then, and throughout the winter, I find myself eating it more so now just mm-hmm. because like whenever I feel a twinge of I'm getting sick, mm. I'll grab a hunk of dulse and, and eat it. Um, and then maybe not so much in the summertime. So it, it's kind of random. It's kind of like when I feel like I get that craving. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's a taste craving or it's something in my body that's saying, you know, I, you really need these minerals. So that kind of fluctuates. The tea, um, in the summertime, I drink one of our blends called Emerald Honeybush sometimes because it's the only one that makes a really good iced tea. Mm. Um, and it's it's uncaffeinated. So that that one I do. And then in the winter time, I'll drink the sea smoke. Cause one of my favorite teas is Lapsang Sushong mm. and, um, the dulse just kind of adds this little bit of sweetness to it in a way. So, um, but yeah, it's like there could be a week go by where I, you know, wasn't having any seaweed. Um, it just, it really fluctuates. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, um, like if someone has never had, had seaweed in their diet and is kind of like still a little hesitant. Like, yep. is there sort of like a, a recommendation in terms of like where to start? Yeah. Well, the, the great thing about seaweed is, um, a little goes a long way, both in taste and in the health benefits. So you don't need a ton of, you know, it's extremely high in iodine. It's very high in potassium and a lot of other things. So you don't need a ton of it, um, to get, you know, your daily value of those, those nutrients. So that's one thing to know. Like mm. you don't have to eat a whole plate of kelp. Right. Um, but the easy ways to start, I think, are something like the, a smoothie cube. Because, mm. you know, you think about it now and you put in greens to a smoothie. You can't yeah. even taste it necessarily if right. you put enough fruit in. Um, so that's a good way to start. There's also a kelp puree out there on the market that's similar. Um, I think if you're a cook and you really want to cook with it, yeah. if you get a kelp and you just start snipping up bits of it in soups, you're probably not going to really taste it. It's going to add maybe a bit of umami or something, but it's not going to be a, it's not going to take over your, your stew or your soup. Um, probably the, in terms of ease, the easiest thing to do would be to get a sea salt, um, that has dulse flakes in it. Mm. You know, we've all switched to sea salt now, it seems like, yeah. um, which is great, but sea salt doesn't have iodine. And so there's not a lot of things that have iodine, but dulse does. It yeah. has a lot. So, <laughs> so that makes a really good um, sort of way to get um, seaweed into your diet or just like, you know, seaweed flakes and then just shake them on eggs, yeah, vegetables, anything. whatever, um, salads. So there, there's some pretty easy ways to start with it. I would not necessarily recommend, you know, seaweed snacks, which is I'm so happy that they exist because they're like the gateway drug kind of like, you know, sushi before them, um, really paved the way for seaweed to be more widely adopted in the United States or readopted, I should say. Right. And, um, and then seaweed snacks have just been like anyone with a kid under 10 years old knows about seaweed snacks. Um, and so that's great, but, uh, you know, there are all these other seaweeds out there that are healthier and, you know, um, just a broader 
array, array of tastes. Yeah. And, and those are pretty much exclusively coming from Asia, I would say. They're right? all, they're, yeah. they're all from Asia. Yeah. yeah. We don't have, um, the processing technology to make nori in this country, as far as huh. I understand. Um, and so it would be cool to, to have a company, you know, doing that. Um, but yeah, right now, um, all, all, all forms of nori basically in sheets are from Asia. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So we just got to get some more people eating kelp and then we'll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe invest in like a nori, nori processing. Right. <laughs> yeah. That like too. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, Josh, thank you so much for being here. This was so great. Thank you so much. It was it was so fun. Um, and so, if people want to go to Heritage um, Seaweed, where's where's the shop? Yeah, so the shop is right in Portland, Maine, in the Old Port, which is the beautiful historic downtown district. And you can find us there. Um, you can also find us online at heritageseaweed.com. And hopefully, some people will come out for Seaweed Week. Um, you can find it at seaweedweek.org. And like I said, we've got over 65 locations in Maine that are participating. So it's going to be a ton of fun. And I think I saw online that there's a view of the seaweed farms from your shop. Is that true? Um, it might, I might've massaged <laughs> oh, that, that line a little bit. <laughs> it's not necessarily an over I think I worded it very carefully, but uh, essentially um, from my, from the shop windows, you can see, um, Casco Bay, mm. which is home to several seaweed well, right, farms. Right, right, of course. <laughs> so, they're right under the water. And plus, even if it was right there, as we talked about before, you wouldn't see them. Yeah. They're, they're all under the water. But they're but, there, and you can... Yeah, they're there, and I can look out over the harbor, and it's it feel it does feel like I'm connected, um, because literally right down the street and around the corner is Bangs Island Mussels. I can go right into their warehouse. You know, it's a two-minute walk, and there's massive piles of seaweed there right i mean i'm not sure if they're there right now but they're actually out harvesting and i think yeah this is the harvest actually I, I emailed um the owner the other day and he was like i think he's going a little bit crazy with the harvesting but, <laughs> um yeah amazing thank you so much thanks a lot thank you all so much for listening to the farm report on heritage radio network if you enjoyed the conversation please subscribe to the podcast rate it and share it i'll see you next wednesday Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.